Section 9 of Pitt by Archibald Primrose, Lord Rosebery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6, Part 2, The French Revolution. On the 28th of March, 1791, a short message was brought from the king to the house stating the failure of his government to bring about peace between Russia and Turkey and demanding an augmentation of the navy to add weight to his representations. Fox received this announcement with unusual solemnity and asked for further information. Pitt haughtily refused to afford more than was furnished in the message, an amazing reticence when the circumstances are considered, and one which the Foreign Secretary Leeds himself denounced after he had resigned. The next afternoon was fixed for the discussion, and before the dawn of another day Pitt had discovered his mistake. The country had had enough of war. The taste of the American campaigns was still hot in the mouth. It had never heard of Azakal and was not prepared to renew its sacrifices that that swampy spot might remain a Turkish possession. More than that, the Baltic trade was of enormous extent. Its annual value was computed at three millions sterling. The commercial classes were ablaze. Warrenzo, the Russian ambassador, finding out from Leeds what was in contemplation, had gone to Fox and excited all the energies of opposition. Nor was the cabinet by any means united. The measure planned outside it had, so to speak, been rushed upon it, and its ministerial opponents remained unconvinced. Richmond, one of Pitt's ablest colleagues, was hostile. Grenville, whose influence over the premier appeared then to be on the increase, always cold, waxed colder. The mutes trembled and wavered, Pitt, his brother, and the Chancellor had been the strongest advocates for action. But Pitt, in spite of his enormous majorities on the message, 97 to 34 in the House of Lords, and 228 to 135 in the House of Commons, resolved to recede. He had received some of the secret warnings that forebode the cyclones in which governments go down. Camden, indeed, thought the government would go down. Grafton made his sons, both members of Parliament, refuse their support. The action, so hurriedly determined, was as hurriedly withdrawn. On the 22nd of March, 1791, the Cabinet had agreed to send fleets to the Baltic and the Black Sea and to make a representation jointly with Prussia at St. Petersburg stating that the two allies were under the necessity of at once taking part in the war against Russia should satisfactory assurances respecting Oxacal not be received within a certain definite time. The messenger, with the joint representation, set off for Berlin on the 27th. The royal message was delivered to Parliament on the 28th, discussed and voted on the 29th. On the 30th, the cabinet met and showed a disposition to retreat. On the 31st, two cabinets were held, at the second of which there was a general collapse, so general that Thurlow feigned sleep to avoid being a party to it. 
it was determined to send a messenger to Berlin to stop the joint representation. Leeds, with spirit, declared that if such a dispatch must go, it must go without his signature. This, however, constituted the least of obstacles. The dispatch went, and Leeds resigned. The whole transaction, from the very inception of the policy to its withdrawal, including the parliamentary debate, had taken just nine days. Able writers speak of Pitt's being warned to recede by his declining majorities on this subject. Nothing can be more erroneous. The rapidity of action with him had been equaled, as we have seen, by the rapidity of reaction. He resolved to recede in a space of twenty-four hours, during which the one division taken gave him a crushing majority. The cool promptitude and courage of his retreat, after a lease of power which would have made most men headstrong, was rare and admirable. Still, it was a retreat, absolute and avowed. To drain the cup of humiliation to the dregs, Faulkner was sent to St. Petersburg to try what he could effect by expostulation. It needs no great experience of affairs to know that when menace has been attempted and has failed, expostulation is only an opportunity for insult. It was an opportunity that Catherine was fully qualified to appreciate. Fortunately for her purpose, Adair, the friend of Fox, happened to be at St. Petersburg. On him she heaped every compliment and caress, while Faulkner was sent empty away. The whole transaction is noteworthy for many reasons. The shortness of time during which the policy was framed and reversed is sufficiently remarkable. So, too, is the unreality of the great majorities in its favor, for it is clear that these votes were reluctantly given and would have been turned against the government had the pressure been less or had the government proceeded further. The weakness of the support was evidently due to the sudden force of public opinion, which acted with a celerity and a completeness rare in the 18th century and amazing under the circumstances. The most astonishing circumstance, however, is the undoubted fact that the government, with all its overwhelming majority, was in imminent danger of dissolution. Storer, a keen watcher of men and events, wrote that had not Fox been impossible, he could easily have got into office. Auckland, at least equally acute, thought the same. So, as we have seen, did Camden. Pitt himself acknowledged it. In the letter which he addressed to Berlin, in explanation of his change of policy, he admits, had he not receded, he must have fallen. So great, indeed, was the loss of prestige that nothing in all probability saved Pitt but the fact that Fox was the only alternative. What was the cause of this catastrophe? High authorities say the Prussian alliance but it is clear that there was too much reluctance at Berlin itself for this explanation to be adequate. The real rival and enemy on which Prussian ministers kept their eyes fixed then and for near a century afterwards reigned not at St. Petersburg but at Vienna. 
the cause was in reality twofold. Pitt saw the danger to the balance of power in Europe from the constantly growing strength of Russia, and emboldened by his pacific successes in Spain and in Holland, did not doubt that the armies of Prussia and the fleets of Great Britain would awe Catherine, then entirely without allies, into acquiescence. It is not impossible that his calculation was correct. Twice had he played the game of brag successfully, and on the whole he had a right to calculate on a third triumph. But his whole plan was nipped in the bud by the one element on which he had not calculated, the hostility of Parliament and of the country. Why, then, had this not entered into his calculations? There lies the second cause of his disaster. It was his growing isolation. Always secluded, he had become almost inaccessible. Dundas and Grenville were alone admitted to his confidence. An inner cabinet, indeed, is not unfamiliar to us, and as the numbers constituting cabinets increase, it must become a recognized institution. But Pitt had not the excuse of numbers, nor indeed that of impracticable colleagues. The real reason for the limitation of his confidences was probably his rooted distrust of Thurlow. It was scarcely worth while to summon a meeting of the cabinet that he might be cursed and betrayed by Thurlow. Nevertheless, his solitude was a grave disability. He was not in touch with his colleagues, still less with the pulse of the people. Had it been otherwise, he could scarcely have remained in absolute ignorance of the storm of opposition that his Russian policy was certain to evoke. So ends the Oaksakow incident. Save a gigantic speech by Fox, it left little behind it. The place itself, like so many spots that have caused or nearly caused great wars, is forsaken and forgotten. But as an epic in Pitt's career, as an illustration of his weakness and his strength, the transaction possesses a vital interest and deserves the most elaborate study. Its political effects endured for a considerable time. It relaxed, if it did not dissolve, that triple alliance of Prussia, Holland, and Great Britain, which had been so far Pitt's main achievement and object in foreign policy. It caused a grave disparagement on the continent of Pitt's judgment and Pitt's power. Of this he reaped the fruits later. As Thurlow remarked with complacency of his chief, there could now be no danger of war while Pitt was in office, for, as he had swallowed this disgrace, it was impossible to conceive one that he could scruple to digest in future. Pitt's reputation did not merely suffer abroad, it was gravely compromised at home. He had rashly menaced and hurriedly retracted. To his proud spirit, the mortification was undoubtedly deep. Burgess, then Undersecretary for Foreign Affairs, has left a curious record of a conversation he had with Pitt at this time, April 19, 1791. Pitt assured him, On my word of honor, 
that my sentiments, notwithstanding everything that is past, are precisely the same as they were, and as the Duke of Leeds are now? He has had the constancy and courage to act upon them in a manner which must ever do him honor. Circumstances, dreadful circumstances, have made it impossible for me to do the same. I am under the necessity of remaining as I am, in order to avoid consequences of the most unpleasant nature. But the Duke has acted nobly, both to the country and to myself. The exact import of these expressions it is not necessary to seek. In the mouth of Pitt they are sufficiently remarkable." Another result, as we have seen, was the resignation of Camarthen, who had succeeded to the dukedom of Leeds in 1789. In itself, the fact had no importance. Leeds was a cipher. He had little capacity. He was both vain and pompous. He was incurably indolent. It is not, therefore, surprising to find that he had become a mere channel and signature stamp for dispatches drafted by Pitt. The importance of his retirement arises from the fact that his successor was Grenville. Some have thought that Leeds was slighted out of office to make room for Grenville. But from the conversation between Pitt and Burgess, just quoted, it is clear that this is not so. Pitt was anxious to appease Burgess and to confide to him the name of his new chief. But Pitt expressly declared that from the variety of difficulties that have occurred, from the number of claims and interests to be discussed, and the multitude of things to be taken into consideration, it was impossible for him to tell with any certainty what that arrangement was likely to be. Grenville, who played so considerable a part, has dropped out of history from sheer want of sympathy. It is due to that fatal deficiency congenital and hereditary with him, that he is now barely remembered as a transient and unnoted premier, as the writer of an obsolete pamphlet, as a partner in a sumptuous edition of Homer, and for his behavior to Pitt. He was not merely one of Pitt's nearest relations, being by birth his first cousin, and having married a Pitt, but he owed everything to his great kinsman. Yet he pursued Pitt with the most truculent hostility to the very death. What human feeling he possessed was reserved for the jobs and sulks of his brother Buckingham. It is strange to read his letters to that most contemptible of human beings who daily required incense or consolation or gossip or apology. It was a grievance against Grenville that when Prime Minister he did not daily pay his respects to the brother whose vassal he remained. Buckingham frowns and Grenville's protestations of anguish and contrition and devotion rend the air. It was a grievance against Grenville when he did not, regardless of his oath, transmit cabinet secrets to this benignant relative and again he has to kiss the dust. Great potentates have been found after death to have always worn some mortifying garment next the skin. Buckingham was Grenville's hair shirt. Grenville was, or became, the typical Whig of his day, for Fox and Burke, with their blaze of passion and genius, were hardly Whigs. They were extremists, 
one way or another, and the pure Whig hated extremes. They were the gladiators and associates of those sublime personages. They were with them, not of them. Fox, perhaps, was rather a liberal than a Whig, and liberalism represents less the succession to than the revolt against Whiggery. Burke was a unique and undefinable factor in politics, for both parties may claim him, and both with justice. The Whig creed lay in a triple divine right, the divine right of the Whig families to govern the empire, to be maintained by the empire, to prove their superiority by humbling and bullying the sovereign of the empire. Grenville was an admirable embodiment of this form of faith. By accident, rather than by choice, he became the leader of the Whigs and Fox's superior minister. He and his brothers each lived on enormous sinecures, Buckingham's amounting, it is said, to 25,000 pounds a year, while his tactless treatment first of the king and then of the regent had much to do with the long exclusion of the Whigs from office. His pride and his principle were so equally unbending that he was apt to confound the two. It is fair to say that it was not only kings that he treated like dirt, for, as he himself acknowledged, not prematurely, when he was prime minister, he was utterly incompetent to deal with men, and when he was secretary of state, our foreign relations suffered from that deficiency. Fox, when in the closest alliance with him, groaned under his impracticability. By 1797, it is clear that Pitt found him extremely difficult to deal with. Wilberforce notes in July 1797, Grenville and Pitt, very like breaking friendship. The familiar allusions to Grenville in Pitt's private letters to Wellesley amply confirm this view. Most significant of Pitt's experience of him is the fact that in the sketch of a combined administration which he drew up in 1804, he substituted Fitzwilliam as Secretary of State and relegated Grenville to the presidency of the council. It was not only impediments of temper and character that caused Grenville to remain so long out of office. From the time of Pitt's death, it is clear that he ceased to care about politics. Perhaps that blow had really cut deeper than appeared on the surface. Be that as it may, Grenville was obviously not reluctant to leave office in 1807, and certainly never showed any wish to re-enter it. He was not in harmony with his party as to the war. He had achieved all that his ambition sought. He was so amply, but so strangely provided for by the state, that the very nature of his sinecure, the holder of which was supposed to audit the first lord of the treasury's accounts, was an obstacle to his holding the premiership, while its income made life too easy. More than that, to so proud a man, the Buckingham system, of which he was a part, must have made politics unendurable. To so guide a flying squadron of borough nominees as to compel the change of a marquis's coronet into a duke's was more than Grenville could stomach, but more than he could avoid. The enchanting shades, the rare shrubs, and the rare books of Drotmore became to him what St. Anne's had been to Fox. 
Poor devils like Sheridan might groan, but they were of no account. The oligarchy had made up its mind to remain in the country. Lords Grey and Grenville had issued their decrees and would hardly deign to come to London to pick up the seals. It is to Grenville's freezing indifference that we mainly owe the long monopoly of the Tories, disastrous in training to the Whigs and in loss of power to the country. To him we owe it that Horner never served the public as a minister, that Brougham never knew the cares and responsibilities of such service until too late to benefit by them, that Gray, though he himself was also to blame, was unable to complete his second year of office until he was sixty-six, and that a fair growth of political buds never blossomed at all. With many talents and some qualities, Grenville's career cannot be pronounced fortunate, either for himself or his country. End of section 9